a Podcast One production. Hello, my name is Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, conversations with fascinating people, all centred, of course, around food. Today I have Jock Somfrillo, the founder of the Arana Foundation, an organisation dedicated to the preservation of Indigenous knowledge and practice with contemporary methods and innovation. It's a mouthful, I know, but he'll explain more later. Jock and I had a lot to talk about. And let me say this, Jock is blunt, he's upfront, he's passionate, he's one of the most committed people that I've ever met in this industry. I absolutely love him. We could have talked for hours. And when I say blunt, you'll see what I mean. Take a listen. So, Jock Somfrillo, I think um, I read somewhere, interestingly, that you think Arana, being a restaurant, is probably more well-known overseas than it possibly is in Australia. Is that true, do you think? Um, is that taken out of context from some strange journalist no, somewhere? No, I think it probably is. Um, I think it has been. Um, we're, we're, I, and I can only speak from, from, from the demand or the request or the, or the need for information yeah. that comes to us and... And most of it's from overseas. Why is that? Sure. What, what, is go- what is not going on in Australia that's happening overseas to create the interest? I'm not sure. And a lot of people offer their opinions on that. <laughs> Everyone's got one. <laughs> and, yeah, a lot of, um, you know, and it's, a lot of people sort of say it's because um, of our location being in, in Adelaide. So we're not in the, the, the hum of hospitality that is Melbourne or Sydney. Um, other people say because it is a... Um, a subject matter that is touchy for some people. Um, everyone sort of moves to the left or right of it. Um, and some people just say it's because I've got a bad attitude or I'm unapproachable. So, <laughs> so it could be any one of those things. I don't we know. can tackle each one of those <laughs> separately if you want. Well, what, do you, what do you reckon it is? You know, if you, if you didn't... <clears throat> um, I don't know. I look, I look, I think in Australia we're so far away um uh from the rest of the world it, it is looked upon as as interesting everything that's going on so the food scene in australia um globally is is something that's talked about daily um all over the world um and so um our subject matter is something that is very different um from normal restaurants and so um uh, it is uh, seems seems to come up in, in people's conversations, and I guess from overseas they look at it differently. They look at it and see, and um, what I see, given that I'm from overseas, I guess yeah. um, uh, they see the oldest surviving culture in the world. They see um, a community of people that probably made bread fifty thousand years before the the Egyptians built the pyramids. They see, you know, a huge amount of of knowledge and and um and and this spiritual kind of connection that, that that culture had with the land itself and it's unique it's very unique um and and it's and it's makeup so yeah I, I think from an overseas perspective because australia's on everyone's radar in the food world anyway um it's probably one of the more interesting and, and around stories. is leading the way I don't know if we're leading the way. We're just, we kind of just really, um, I said, I don't open Arana, restaurant Arana to become Australia's best restaurant or the world's best restaurant or anything. I opened it because I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't say what I had to say in a paragraph. I couldn't explain to people what it, what I was trying to do. I, I know I wanted to give back and I know I wanted to uh, open this, start this foundation 
um, and I just couldn't seem to get anyone on the same page of the way I was thinking. And and it became the point where it's just like jocks on a soapbox again, like banging on about indigenous food or ingredients or blah, 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 blah. And unless you actually go out and see it, taste it, feel it, I think it's really hard to grasp. And so at some point... Um, I think it was Rene Rizepi or it might even have been Alex. One of the guys said to me, you need to, you just need to do a restaurant. You need to do a restaurant so people can see it. Otherwise, you've got no chance of getting this off the ground. Yeah, and this is Alex Atala. Yeah. You spent some time Yeah, I spent with some Alex. time in the Amazon <clears throat> with, with him as well. And so, and all, I think everybody just communally said, in order, for, if you want to really do this, you're going to have to start a restaurant yeah. as much as you don't want to. And so, I didn't. <laughs> that, that's but you got one. Like, and that's it, you got two. I've been in Australia since 91, and we've seen indigenous food go through these weird kind mm. of ups and downs of, you know, ridiculousness, let's be honest. It's not yeah. expressed in any kind of real way. They're odd combinations of food. And I think people have got this kind of funny idea about what it all is. So yeah. we need to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, if you're up for it, yep. and, and kind of describe exactly uh, what this fascination with indigenous ingredients is and what it means. Um, so I, um, I came out the first time ninety. I think maybe 95 and and from London so I was out at three Michelin stars been working with Marco in, at the restaurant in Knightsbridge and coming out of that sort of three star environment um, you, you're sort of looking for the essence of everything the very core reason why you know food is excellent whether it's in Sydney Melbourne or whatever and so um we jumped on a, a plane because we were all sick of London and, you know, Australia had beaches, beautiful women, nice weather. And so it's like, obviously, we're going to go there. And they speak English. It was like, mm. great. Fantastic. So flight over, we arrived. And I said, we arrived at the at the airport and um, I was with uh, my mate Bob. And uh, the customs officer said, um, what are you doing here? We'll give you a visa, whatever. And I said, uh, I said, my chef, we've come here for a year. And she said, okay, so uh, where are you staying tonight? And I said, I've got no idea. I couldn't tell you. Like that, I mean, I hadn't booked anywhere. No idea what, what, what was going on. And I said, and so there was this tussle forward. Then it got to where are you working? And I said, well, I'm going to go work for Stephanie Alexander. And she said, um, she goes, oh, right. She goes, um, so how are you getting there tonight? And I said, I'll just get a taxi out there, possible. And she said, "So you're in Sydney, and Stephanie Alexander's in Melbourne. So it's a little, it's a distance away." Mm. I said, "Oh, we'll get a train then, whatever." She said, "It's like eleven o'clock at night. You can't get there." Blah blah. Anyway, so once we realised we were in the wrong place entirely, and Stephanie Alexander didn't know I was going to go and work for her either at that <laughs> stage, I just assumed that I would get a job. Um, but I was very naive. I was a naive Brit who assumed there would be kangaroos and Aboriginal people everywhere, and of course it's not. There was a Sydney Harbour and. A big tall city and all the rest of it, and great restaurants like fantastic. I mean, those days you would remember Marini's Forty One yeah. area was yeah. kicking around then, even as well. Um, so like pre key days, I, I yeah. guess some great, fan- fantastic restaurant. Um, Pinulay was cooking at um, Damien Pinulay at uh, Bistro Moncure, or well, maybe was that was it before. He, he was at the place on Oxford Street, top of Oxford Street. Mm. See now you're even. Claude's. my memory. Claude's? Claude's. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So yeah. there was there were, the food was fantastic, right? Yeah. But there was no there was nothing Australian. And that it, it, I had assumed that I was going to come across and see black guys cooking in the kitchen. And yeah. and and I'd sort of 
I had seen, you know, some really rubbish Australian TV and, uh, with Aboriginal guys and whatever. So I was quite excited about it. And of course, I didn't get it. I ended up working at Restaurant 41 for 12 months and we tried to use some of the ingredients. Um, and I remember we got a review from somebody anyway who just touched on like, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but they're trying to use whatever it was, wattle seed or something. And it, they got a bit of a bag in and Deep Mouse said to me, that's that's enough. Like, we've got three hats. I want to keep three hats. Yeah. Like, and Deep Mouse, Sawyer at the time, was one of the kind of culinary leaders, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. And him and, yeah, <clears throat> so he, he didn't want to take was. a chance. He wasn't no. taking a chance. And I think the perception of those ingredients at that point, and we're talking ni- mid-90s, was pretty bad. I, I think the issue with it was, was none of those ingredients or techniques or an understanding behind them was ever put in context in a restaurant. So, you know, um, right. and we always say it was sort of, you know, ingredients pulled out of a freezer bag and sprinkled across a European menu, kind of, you yep. know, and, and I'm not turning everyone with the same brush and people do some excellent work. N- nothing, nothing to say there. I think it's more or less... What I realized was that nobody connected with the people that it came from and it underst- took time to understand the culture and the why and the seasons and where and could we get it fresh and not fro- frozen and all that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. The things that you would ask as a chef. Well, right? it's a really important distinction because I think what I remember it was it, it was chefs trying to tackle ingredients that were just seemingly inferior to the proper stuff. Absolutely. So, you, yeah. you know, trying to make a sauce with condoms when you'd just rather use cherries. Exactly. For example. Yeah, and and I think that was the I think that was what I said. In that twelve months I don't really touch on it and I went back to the UK after working for twelve months and I straight back into London with Marco again and, and you know, the whole time I was sort of thinking, you know, why like what what was that all about? Like that is an entire country of like salt and pepper calamari and good French food and, you know, great Thai but where was the Australian food? Like, and where were all the Aboriginal people also? That was very confusing. Anyway, so then Dietmar rang me and he said, do you want to come back over? You know, and I was like, yeah, sure. So I immigrated back in 2000 and then working for Dietmar again. And, and um, same sort of thing. I just started sort of like putting fillers out, seeing some of these ingredients. And um, everybody, everybody just kept saying to me, listen, you need to just, you know, open your own restaurant, do three Michelin stuff and you'll kill it. And I was like, I just don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to do it. I'm yeah. li- I live in, I now live in Australia. I've immigrated here. Yeah. I'm going to become a citizen and I want to be a part of the country. And so, you know, it's not, it's not what, um, it's not what the country can do for you. It's what you can do for the yeah. country, essentially. That was Which is a different time. Because coming out of the UK, there was a wave of chefs coming out of the mm. UK. Qualifications were yep. good. Our qualifications were good. Yep. So you would have joined the ranks of people like Donovan Cook and uh, Jeremy Strode, yep. people like this that were actually opening French restaurants and opening totally. restaurants that were like straight out of London. Yeah. And, and you know, Dietmar's restaurant wasn't sort of, it was sort of French, Japanese, Asian, yeah, a bit of Asian. whatever. And, you know, it was awesome. But, I just, I got so disillusioned that I was in a country that I wanted to know more about the food and the culture, but I was here, here I was in one of, considered to be one of the best restaurants in the city, in the country, and, but I couldn't, I couldn't even touch on any of it. Okay. And so I just left. I, I, that, I was the 2001, I think I left there. And so 2001, I went to, uh, I decided I was going to, I was going to go and speak to an Aboriginal person about these ingredients, right? I thought, right, okay, there's, the books are limited. There's very little information and the books looked as if they were written in 1930. So I thought, I'm just going to go and speak to an Aboriginal person. So I went, uh, that was much harder than you might imagine in Sydney in 2001. Yeah. Um, I uh, went to Circular Key because I knew there was always guys busking down there. 
are not stereotypical. However, they were there. And so I uh, introduced myself to this guy. His name is Jimmy. And I said, do you mind if I sit down and talk to you about indigenous ingredients, where you grew up, what you ate, who cooked, blah, blah, blah. And that turned into a four-hour conversation that just changed my life. That that four-hour conversation was, was him telling me about six seasons instead of four, about only cooking a particular type of fish on a certain type of wood, about um, how hot the coals had to be before you put the fish on, about the smell, about stuffing that fish with a herb that, that, smelled, like, uh, that smelled like sort of kaffir lime, lemongrass, and how delicious it was, about when a, a lily blossoms, a certain lily blossoms on the beach, that the, the livers inside the stingrays were fat, and that's when he would hunt them for that month. And then when the flower disappeared, they wouldn't hunt them anymore, so they would be plentiful for the next year. He told me about tea trees blossoming, and that's when you know the snapper run would be going up, and that's why they would, they would organise a corroboree at that time of year, because there would be plenty of food that they could feed all these mob of people. So that went against everything that anybody had told me about Aboriginal people, like completely. And so that four hours totally just turned turned my life upside down so from that point on I probably changed as a person because I carried some of the um, the, the pre-misconceptions I guess that I'd been told um, firstly and secondly um, as a cook um, I started to think very differently because there was this clearly this connection between the person and, and the land very different yeah what did you expect out of that conversation Nothing, actually. I just thought maybe you just, just have a couple of words. Well, and I, I, I knew I knew that what I knew that what was in the books was interesting, but there just wasn't enough, right? And like, and and it doesn't. It's not like you would read one of those books and you go, yeah, dial one three hundred four seven seven triple three, and you can order mangrove seeds or something. There's not. There was no reference mm. point. To, it was just you know, indigenous people were thought to have eaten this or like, yeah, but what did they do with it? And when was it in season and was it fresh or did yeah. they eat it, boil it? Did they eat it raw? Like what happened? Do you know what I mean? And so th- there was, I went, I went there just expecting stories of, I, I guess what he ate. That was it, you know? And what I got though was a snapshot of a very, very complex culture. Yeah, absolutely. And have you stayed in touch with Jimmy? Is he, he's dead. You, he's no, dead. He's so he, did you talk to him after that, or was it is it a singular moment in your? That was a your... singular moment. Jimmy and I never spoke again after that day, and and um, I went back down to Circular Key many many times, um, and it and it wasn't till a good couple of years later before I met someone who knew who Jimmy was, um, and said that he passed away. So oh, um, it's a shame, but also that first conversation just like I say, it turned into a four hour belter. That it's just one of those things that you'll never forget, you know. So, so where do we go from here? What, what happened? How do you? How, so, there's no num- central number to call. How do, how do you find out more well, about it? Do that you go was, traveling. Yeah, that was it. It was okay. So, there's no, there's no books. There's no, there's no, there's more well, limited anyway. And so, that I thought, I just thought to myself, the only way to do this is just to, you know, go out into communities. Hmm. And so, when I was speaking to Jimmy, I said, you know, what, I said, what would happen if. If I just got in a, a car and went to, yeah, we just <laughs> went into a community, and he was laughing at me. He said, "He goes, I don't know." He said, "You'd, you'd have to go there, and you, they'd, they'd probably talk to you, and they might let you in, or they might not." And I was like, "Okay." So um, I went to APY Lands was the first, the first because I'd heard I wanted to see the the, the most um, organic version of indigenous life, I guess, and so from. Um, from where we are in Sydney, I was living in Sydney still at the mm. time, um, and 
I, I drew a line. I was like, well, it's just straight across there. Like, how hard can that be to get there, right? And it was a very long drive to get to AP Violence. And um, I jumped out of the car, super enthusiastic, um, asked to speak to, to someone that could help me. Um, and then I got ushered into this sort of, like, um, shed. Um, and there was six elders there. And then they interviewed me and then told me to piss off. <laughs> and, and then it was a long drive back to Sydney where I was just thinking shit like what was that all about you know and so anyway i went there seven times in the end i drove there seven times before they let me in to see the same elders same to elders. have the same conversation they a few of them changed actually over the over over the couple of years but yeah. yeah um and then and then they let me in so the conversation was almost like an interview where they, they want to know about you as a person and and what, really what you want and i think in all honesty I didn't give any different answers the first time as I did the seven. I think the reality is is that this weird chef Scottish guy is pitched up and, and they're just like, yeah, get out of here. What's wrong with you? Yeah. You know? Um, and I think just perseverance and, and the, you know, the, the fact that I wasn't trying to take anything really, it just, I wanted to understand. Different um, approach. Yeah. Do you understand it now? Do you understand their approach, that, those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I still learn every day. Don't get me wrong, um, but I understand far more than, than what, what were than they I thinking? Were they thinking um, the 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 threatened? They're used to having people come and and uh, promise the world and you know deliver an atlas. The they're used to um, people extracting and not giving back. Um, so you know, one of the things that Jimmy told me uh, when I met him that day was he said he goes these parting words to me were, no matter what you do, give back more than you take. And and stuck, absolutely, it's the is the <clears throat> backbone of our business. It's the backbone of the way we treat staff. It's the backbone of the foundation. It's it's absolutely one of the principal phrases that you'll hear in any of my businesses. Yeah. So fast forward, how, how many years ago was that? Now, so we're talking what mid nineties, ninety five. No, 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 that's two thousand. So that was two thousand and one. Right. Okay. Yeah. Two thousand one, so, two thousand two. That happened. Okay. Yeah. Still a few years ago. Yeah. yeah so yeah. sixteen years ago or so. Yeah. So. Fast forward, what are, you, what are you seeing now that you didn't see? Well, I think then? it's, I, I honestly think you can look at, um, you can look at this so many ways. There's, 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 it's come a long way, right? And I think even if you look at, um, when I was on MasterChef, how long ago was that? Oh, five years ago, maybe? Five years, four, maybe, five years four or five ago, years ago. Yeah. So, and even then, I think people were like raising an eyebrow going, Native Ingredients, what is he on about? Like, seriously, we yeah. don't want to eat that shit. Yeah. And I think I remember, Kylie was your guest judge then, and we brought some, what to us was normal store cupboard ingredients, Dorigo pepper, a few ingredients, and even Kylie was like, I've never seen that yeah. before in my life. Um, but now Kylie's flying the flag and using it left, right, and center. It's awesome. And she's using it in her way, which is fantastic. Yeah. But you're now seeing that so many, so, in so many different variations all across the country. Um, and and that's what that's what success, I think, looks like in terms of, of, of getting um, uh, that first step towards a more... Um, cohesive gastronomic culture thing happening. You know what I mean? Where, yeah. where, where the you have to, you have to you have to understand the ingredient first, but then also, you know, it's it's not a museum, right? Like indigenous culture isn't a museum. It's not it's not just something you go and observe and point the finger and go, oh, look at that. It's like that culture wants to be um, 
studied and acknowledged. But then, like any culture, you, you're picking parts out of it and using it either in your own culture or, or in you know, cohesively along with yeah. your own culture. And that's what we're seeing. And I think that's really, to be honest with you, five, six years ago, it started happening. And then, and then now you can see most restaurants, I think, in Australia have got something, something. native on there, right? Something. It's a long, it's a long process. Yeah. How, how long do you think, and I'm going to ask you a couple of other questions related yeah. to those individual ingredients, but how long do you think, based on how things are going now, it will be before we see, start seeing these, on, these native ingredients on, on the shelves in the shops? Uh, it doesn't have to be the supermarkets, but at least so people, because you can access a little bit of it, but it's still very You can. A lot of limited. it's sort of cottage business online type scenario. Um, and honestly, you can buy sort of, you know, like, uh, you know, native salt rub or, I mean, it's shit. And yeah. you can buy that in the supermarket and it's garbage. To be yeah. honest, it's mixed with paprika and onion powder and garlic powder and you wouldn't know any different. Um I think, and I know some of the stuff that we are, some of the products we're working on in the foundation, for example, want to be in the supermarket within the next couple of years. Okay. So and what kind of things are we talking about? What do you reckon straight away people would you um, know, use Ger- as part of their de- daily cooking? So Geraldton Wax was one of those things that sort of Jimmy said to me. He said there was stuff in lime, you know, like a lime tree inside the yeah. fish. And, you know, like I drew a lime leaf like an idiot. And he laughed at me and drew what looked like pine. And it wasn't until four years later um, when I was up in uh, uh, I'm in the north of the country, I'm in the Kimberley, and um, along the Fitzroy, I was staying with these guys and, and they caught barramundi in, in the Fitzroy River and then we stuffed that with Geraldton Wax plant and, and unbeknown to me and it was on the fire and I smelt this sort of kaffir lime, you know, right? Because mm. the chef, it's so distinct, right? Yeah. Very clear. And I asked him what it was. He gave me the, the, the his native name and... Um, uh, the next morning he showed it to me and of course it was it looked a little bit like a shabby pine you know or, yeah. or a shabby rosemary I guess and um, I, I tasted it and it was like kaffir lime lemongrass like a cross of the two and I was like that's what Jimmy was talking about that's yeah. what he drew Yeah, you know and so uh, you know it's something like that for example is not too I always talk about trying to make and particularly in the restaurants whether it was Street or Blackwood or Rana is that first step into uh, into this not to be um, difficult not to be topical not to be uh, in your face too much we just want that first step into that environment that culture those ingredients to be a really nice one yeah. and for me that's a herb that you can strip chop throw in a, a stir fry or you can put it in your gin and tonic or you know what I mean? There's so many things you can do with that, yeah. right? And then there's, there's, yeah, everyone knows like Morton Bay Fig. Like I bang on about Morton Bay Fig all the time because it is so delicious. And everyone knows a Morton Bay Fig tree is an iconic Australian tree. When the, 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 the on the tree, it sort of puts out a shoot, which the sh- it looks like a shoot, I guess, like a pointy kind of skewer. But on all it is, is a curled up leaf. And so as it sort of gets older, the leaf uncurls and obviously turns into what you would see as a leaf. Um, but those cooked um, in ash, um, and then, we, so we cook them in ash first, and then they go through um, a pickle for only for about two weeks, just to just to get them going a little bit, and then we put them into our brine. And they have, they've got sort of a, a texture like artichoke, um, and, it, and it makes the back of your mouth water and leaves this amazing coconut aftertaste. It's phenomenal. Like, it's so good. 
Inside. Why, why is that not in uh, every Australian antipasto? I don't know. Plate? I want to get them. <laughs> it's awesome. And the, but that's the thing, isn't it? So if we were to, if we were to pick uh, six ingredients that you should think should be in everybody's cupboard at home, what, what, what are the roadblocks to getting them? We're um, actually finding out about them first, promoting them, and then getting them. Yeah, I, and it is a process, and that's, I guess, part of the job of the foundation. And that's what, you know, we we, we just started two months ago um, a relationship with um, Adelaide University, the Botanic Gardens, and the South Australian <coughs> Museum to, to do exactly that, to create a database of all of these ingredients and work out, you know, what, what's the, if we want to take, if we want to take native foods, uh, to a wider audience, a wider market, and, and and be able to acknowledge at the same time the people where they come from and give back because that's the purpose of the foundation. You know, we need to collate all of the existing information together with the information that, that I've been on for the last 15, 16 years of my journey um, and then work out, you know, okay, because as you know, food trends change, right? Yeah. And, and what's gastronomically relevant this year isn't in a few years' time. Um, but if we've got a database that we can draw those, you know, what are the gastronomic trends now? Is it heat? Is it bitterness? Is it whatever? Um, and then we're able to, to very quickly work on a low-hanging fruit and try and get them into market. But in the knowledge that people want to buy it, which means that then we can then set up a project within a community um, knowing that we can sell 100% of whatever it is they're growing, harvesting, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the answer to that is 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 being opportunistic. It is being uh, nimble in, in, in your nature of, of the body of work that you're trying to do um, and having expert help and, and having this database sort of, you know, a very authenticated uh, and it will be open source once we once we get it to a point um, but we're looking at a thousand ingredients in the first 12 yeah. months so we're not yeah. we're, we're not this is technical stuff so to, to rewind a little bit this is the Arana Foundation is yes. that correct yep. so you got a government grant did you not we did and what was that worth? Just um, one point two five million. So okay. we got we got the government grant. Um, only we actually got the money two months ago. Did you have to pitch this? Did you have to? I've been, I was pitching that sucker for five or six years. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, it was pretty tough. So not only is it hard to bring the general public into the to kind of into this thing, mm. you know, into to make them aware of native ingredients, yeah. but even persuading government, government bodies, local authorities to get involved. It was difficult. And, and, you know, I was having that conversation pre-restaurant, you know, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And that was when everyone said to me, you need yeah. to open a restaurant because just nobody's going to listen to you otherwise. But once we had the restaurant, it became much easier because we could sit somebody down in a restaurant and, and talk about all these ingredients, talk about the people, talk about the culture and the traditions and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But they could eat it at the same time and go, yeah, right. Because all they would do was give any reference point that they had previously, which was Bush Tucker, nineteen early nineties, yeah. late eighties, whatever. Yeah. yeah, or jam or chutney or yeah. Bush tomato or chutney. the shit salt rub you can buy from in the supermarket, yeah. right? So, I mean, for me, it 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 really changed once we once we sort of had our strides in a restaurant and we were able to actually uh, sort of legit, it was almost like it, not that it ever needed to be legitimized, but it kind of, that's what it did. Yeah. Well, I think it's important. It gives people a touch point where they can go, mm. oh, he's doing it well. Yeah. I mean, even when you're on MasterChef, it's mm. like, okay, that's a different dish. That's a different yeah. way of approaching ingredients. And then it makes people think, doesn't yeah. it? It's really important. What, what's the, what are you hoping the reach of the Arana Foundation is going to be? So you're collating a database, ingredients. What What's it doing in the communities and how's that going to, 
how's it going to grow over the next, say, four or five years? Um, it'll it'll just keep growing. This is something that's bigger than I am. It's bigger than my career will ever be. And, and by no means, by the time I pass it on or pass away, will it be finished. Um, and and that's why we wanted to to do this project together with a university, um, with the museum, um, and with the Botanic Gardens, because the, you, you can't complete a body of work like that. It's yeah. impossible. And and we and also we wanted to do it in a way that was like i said before that was that legitimizes the importance of that of that knowledge yeah. right um and and so i think everybody makes a huge mistakes that the indigenous culture aboriginal people just want money or they want whatever you know sometimes they just want a bit of acknowledgement yeah around you know the the traditions or culture or or, or food for that matter just acknowledgement that's it um, and by creating this, um, or starting to create it at least, um, it's daunting because it's so big. Yeah. Um, and that's why, again, it's like, you know, I'm a chef, I've chopped onions, I don't know how to run a foundation. We've got an executive director on our foundation that used to run UNICEF Australia for five years. He ran the Opera House for five years. He's Optus. He's the, just, mm. you know, he knows what he's doing with regards to that. I'm 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 the one that talks a million miles an hour at everybody and like this is what we want to do and why yeah. we want to do it. Um, his job is to actually uh, work out how how that can actually work for a not for profit, yeah. how to fund it, etc. And and being an association, I guess, with universities and museums, etc., will allow us to do it in a systematic fashion. Yeah. I mean, we can be systematic in the kitchen, right? But when it comes to something like that, how do you? Yeah. How do you do it? I don't know. So yeah. does it does it uh, play a role in educating kids? Like, does it get involved in schools? To, will yeah. it? I mean, when you're blue skying it, I mean, you'd want a generation of kids growing up going, yeah, I know what it is. I yeah. Know what that is. So we've had already had initial talks with um, with the government around putting it into curriculum, some of this mm. information, and certainly once it becomes uh, open source, that's going to be, you know, it's a no brainer. Um, you know, again, though, it's the conversations that I have always are 10 steps ahead. So that to me is, although a no brainer, when we're talking to government bodies and they're saying, yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, and you're saying, listen, that this shouldn't even be a conversation. We should be talking about yeah, if, make you, it happen. if you go to school in Queensland, it should be a different a different curriculum piece than it is in New South Wales or Western Australia or Northern Territory. Yeah. Makes sense. That's too fast. That's, That's too, too fast. You said nimble. <laughs> yeah. You see, government organisations aren't nimble. That's why it's going to outlive you probably because yeah, it'll be yeah, 20, 20 years. But can you give me, can you give us a sense of some of the interactions you've had when you've been to some of these communities? Because, it, you know, as a, and as Australian myself, and I'm an imported Australian, but mm. I feel Australian, there's, there's such a massive disconnect between the city lives we lead and country lives that people lead and but then also indigenous lives yeah. that people lead i think we're we're completely distanced from it I, th I think we are and i think we're distanced just from um by the difference of it you know i think i think so i was at a food conference in australia and um uh we i was talking about the foundation and i was talking about indigenous culture and the spirit how spiritual it is and so we we're talking about um, the rainbow serpent, and you know, that it went over there to die, and that's you know, once it had created man, it went over there, and that's what is now the mountain ranges. And so, uh, someone someone jumped up and said, "Don't you think this is all a bit far fetched? The whole you know, <laughs> rainbow serpent, and uh, now it's a mountain range." And I said, "I said, is it any more outrageous than?" Than the guy that parted the, the seas, what was his name? Moses, Moses. parting the sea, or or the burning bush, or 
Like, yeah, loads and fishes. No more ridiculous than those stories. Seriously, like you know, and and everyone's quite happy to buy a book and go to church and do that. So why is this any different? Uh, it's just different. Like, don't fear difference. Just just take it for what it is. Mm. And I think the spirituality of Aboriginal people isn't something that's talked about much, um, and it's not something they like talking about much. Um, it's kind of almost a guarded kind of secret. And that's why, you know, and a lot of people just don't understand it. Between songlines and dreaming, it's kind of like this whole gray area for a white person in Australia, right? But if you actually just went out and spent some time with them, um, they would tell you, not all of it, but they would tell you enough so you understand it. And my interactions go pretty deep. Sometimes they are purely based around food. And, and don't forget, as, the, as, as, as a chef going into a community of Aboriginal people compared to a businessman or uh, an oil worker or a politician, yeah. I have a very different conversation when I, when I go into a community. Um, you know, we are, we are hitting usually the art centre first or someone who is an artist, and then, and then we start looking at all the food that they're drawing or painting. That's usually my first start point. And then from there, I start having beautiful conversations around what season they're in, you know, what they do with them. And it flows on from there. And within half an hour, all the walls are down and everybody wants to cook with you. So it is a, it's, it's different for me. My interactions are, um, are, are always beautiful. I've, I've only had a handful of really negative ones. Um, and, and some of them just shake you to the core. Like I was in the, the time with the Geraldton Wax, for example, we were camped by the, on the Fitzroy River. And so when it, when it was dark, I, look, I hear this, this like chomp noise, right? And I'm like, what's the, you know, I was listening to it. There was quite a lot of them, right? And we were in the fast pitch black. And I, and I, anyway, I said to him, I said, what's the, that noise? Like what, a bird or a, what is it? And he said, no, no, the crocodiles. And I was like, yeah, okay. So like torch out, looked up, the, like shone it up the Fitzroy and you could just see all these red eyes, right? So our camp is right next to the river, like two meters, you're at the water's edge. And so I said, I said, Charlie, I don't think it's a good idea for us to camp here. <laughs> like seriously. And he said, no, no, no. We've been looking after this land for years. And you know, our ancestors, as long as we're looking after the land, the land will look after us. The crocodiles won't touch us. And I said, so we're, we're camping here. You know, we had swags. Anyway, I moved my swag to the back, like as far away from the water. I thought, well, it's going to get one, two, three, four. <laughs> It'll get at least six other people before it gets to me. I'll hear the screams. I'll wake up and I can scarper. Easy. So anyway, we went to, and you could hear things moving at night. I just couldn't sleep. It was awful. Worst, worst night's sleep in my life. We got up in the morning and Charlie takes me for a walk and we go around the camp and you can see where the crocodiles have come up the banks and they've come all the way around the camp, but they haven't come into the camp. And it's, things like that blow you away. When you think about it, that's the crocodile that wants to eat you, but it didn't come in the camp. Like, why is that? Yeah. You know, and so it's things like that. It's whether you believe or you don't believe. Like I could give you 400 examples of that where I've been in, uh, in a community and seen Stuff that I can't explain. Yeah. You know? It's amazing. Wise for you to be at the back, though, because I'm sure their spirit <laughs> is protected. But for you, I don't think the <laughs> no, same exactly. rules would apply. Yeah, they go, we found one at the back here. <laughs> the rules don't apply. 
After the break, we find out more about Jock's personal life, the roller coaster that it actually is, and how he managed to convince the infamous Marco Pierre White to give him a job despite having just been fired from a one Michelin star restaurant. Jock, can you think of a moment that changed your perspective on things? I think every time, honestly, I, 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 you, it, it'd be crazy to single out one. They're all the same. I think the bit that really gets my heart and what sort of really gave me more motivation than ever to move quicker with the foundation was um, uh, I was in uh, East Arnhem Land on an island um, and they were, they were teaching me how to make damper out of cycad nuts. And cycad nuts are super toxic. And, what um, is a cycad nut? A, a, so a cycad is. tree has these <clears throat> sort of like kernels in the middle of it. Like actually, so a, cy- a cycad tree looks like what the tall um, blackened trunk ones with this like grassy okay. things. Yeah. Uh, well, not grassy though. They've got like a fern type yeah. top. Anyway, the, there's sort of nuts that are inside them. So they collect the nuts and uh, Dorothy, her name was. And so Dorothy was teaching me how to make damp out of these nuts. So they get the nuts, they they just they um, hit it with a rock just to break it, put them in an onion, onion sack and then stick it in, in, in the water. And it leaches all the toxins out of it anyway. So she was showing me this, except um, it went into a creek with no moving water and probably had a fair bit of sewage in it, I reckon. And then, so it was in there for like three days while we were getting around the community. So you can imagine, like when you approached that creek, it was pretty stinky anyway. Mm. And then she pulled them out. So I went back three days later. She pulled them out. She t- husked them. And then she started smashing up the with a rock all the paste of the nut, the cycad nut. And the smell was just gross. Like it was disgusting. Um, and I just, inside your head, you, you as, as a practitioner of food, you instinctively know what's right and what's not right, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you can pull something out of your fridge that's a month past its sell-by date, but it still might be all right, right? Because you, you know. You are hardwired, you know. essentially, to preserve life. I knew that, that <laughs> there was no preserving of life going on here, and if I ate it, I was going to be in trouble. And But what, what got me was is that that's knowledge that's been passed on to her, but she's now old, right? Like, she's in her 60s, and she's forgotten so much stuff. Um, that part of that process of t- of of the of the of, of creating that means that she's she's forgotten a step, you know that I can guarantee you that that um, those cycad nuts were supposed to be in a creek of running water. Yeah. I can guarantee you that that the, that running water would never have had any sewage in it or animal piss further upstream yeah. or whatever. Um, and so that, like, when you're in those moments for me, that really br- it breaks my heart because I'm already too late with what I'm doing, you know. Um, the very the very next day, we've been talking to Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank was going to show me uh, the super traditional recipe with the fish that has, and he was 61, super traditional. It was a, he was in a different community. Um, uh, um, super traditional recipe with fish and he banged on about it for like three, four days and then we went to his house um, uh, to, to do this fish thing and I thought this is going to be another one of those cracking things where it's just going to blow me away and he got a fish that he'd bought at the IGA and he wrapped it up in tin foil and put it in fire mm. and so it's 
things like that that just tear me apart, honestly, like brings me to tears. And because I know that I can't go fast enough and I know that I've already missed so much. And so part of the job of the foundation in that database is to collate all the existing anthropological notes or drawings or paintings or audio recordings from years and years and years ago that are in people's garages or whatever get that information because it's all there is and if it disappears then we'll end up being like the states it's gone where they've got no idea what happened in manhattan they, they you know, who were the people what did they eat they can't they, they don't know yeah you know what's fascinating just listening to you talk is that there's hundreds of thousands of uh, food tourists going to all the most predictable places in the world including australians and we're ignoring that mm. and i include myself mm. in that and i'm sure the aboriginal communities aren't ready for the onslaught that could no. happen but at the same time i just think that's absolutely fascinating can you give us a sense of where you want to see this in the next five years i just really foundation i i think with the foundation that it, that that it's, it's got a job in cultural preservation. It's got a job in, in driving change. It's got a job in giving back. Um, and I think, you know, I, even I don't know what the what the what it's going to turn into. I hope it turns into something that's bigger than Ben Hur, of course. But um, I think ultimately, as long as that, as long as the foundation can 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 bring acknowledgement to Indigenous people and its culture and how sophisticated and technical it is um, while creating um, uh, some some really unique flavors um, in, in Australian food. Um, I think that bridges the gap uh, a fair bit, but it'll also enable indigenous enterprise um, beyond, beyond measure. Um, and if it can achieve that alone, then I'll be a very, very happy person. Um, you know, moving on from there, I think it. I think it really is about bringing. I hate to say, it, and it sounds so archaic to say this, but to bring the misconceptions of Black Australians. Um, if it can change that, uh, I, I think that's probably the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the the misconception of an Aboriginal man with his tooth knocked out, for example, is just that he got drunk and had a fight. It's not. It's that he's an initiated Aboriginal man. That's why he's had his tooth knocked out deliberately. So it's even just if you look at that as a misunderstanding, there's so much of that, you know, that, that, that I think if we can change that, we're on to a winner. Brilliant. So you're in Scotland, obviously. Yep. Where, where in Scotland? Um, Glasgow. Glasgow? Yeah. So the nicest part of Scotland, of It's beautiful. It is. <laughs> Cultural renewal and urban regeneration and all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have to talk about it a lot, but did you have a great childhood? Did you have a privileged childhood? Did you um, have a hard childhood? I think I had uh, a fairly middle-class childhood, you know. I, I certainly didn't, wasn't impoverished. Um, my parents were super hard workers. They were both hairdressers. Dad was a barber. Mum was a, a hairdresser. Um, uh, they met because Dad's barber shop was across from the hairdresser my mum was working at, and they chanced eyes, glance, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mum's family uh, are, uh, are all farmers, so arable crop. Um, and beef farmers and so um, grandpa had a, um, uh, quite a large property where, where he, like I say he did arable but he also did um, uh, Belted Galloways South Devons, Scottish Highlands some of the, the sort of old fashioned breeds, uh, English Longhorns and, and the like and then uh, his sort of um, everyone in his family then were also in farming so there were dairy farmers, they were, they were all farmers right and dad's family complete opposite they're, they're Italians so 
you know, they came over post-war um, to make a life. And, you know, my dad's dad, for example, brought them over. Um, and and it, so there's two cultures that are just totally different. You know, like the Italians love a new pair of shoes. <laughs> and, you know, the, the Scots are more interested in what's for dinner. Mm. So, um, and, and at the dinner table, that led to some pretty crazy, you know, I, I, I was aware that there, w- there was differences in culture obviously then b- from a very early age so one night we'd be having boiled potatoes and brown mince literally um, with a cup of tea yeah. and then the next night we'd be uh, you know Uncle Tony's house with spaghetti sauce up the walls f- you know fresh um, prosciutto and salamis and the smell of mozzarella focaccia fresh out of the oven olives you know just two completely different cultures both in flavour and smell and noise and everything. I was going to say two, uh, one quiet side of the table totally. one noisy noisy side of the table is yeah. that yeah. yeah and just one and free with their emotions one's holding them back absolutely and and you know but that that was for me that was crazy because you know i used to absolutely love the italian sides like it just that for me was you know and as a child it is far more attractive than boiled potatoes and mince with mm. you know with uh, with that and you know my mum gives me such a hard time she'll listen to this podcast so i'm just gonna say <laughs> i'm sorry mum once um, but as a scot you can be yeah. a warrior you can be fierce you can be proud of other things and as an italian it can be about the food so as a chef the italian side can appeal to you right it, absolutely and but the whole italian way of life appealed to me and you know if i look at the photographs of of uh, dad's side of the side of the family they they are incredible it's that mediterranean mm. you know like f- so well dressed uh you know crazy but then you know look at old photographs from my, from my mum's side of the family and there's you know grandpa at a farm gate with a suit on because he was going to the farmer's dance or something you know like yeah. it's crazy like yeah. really you know old uh, hand hand pulled um not hand pulled horse pulled like a plows. plow yeah. yeah i mean some of those photographs are absolutely sensational well you'll see dad's dad my nono outside the front of a shop like he would pull a tommy gun on you you know what i mean <laughs> crazy <laughs> i love it so what became why why a chef like, what point did you go uh, i'm going to be a chef because actually back then and i even when i started I think might be a bit older than you are, but it wasn't kind of the thing to do. No, all my friends were no. architects and builders yeah. and fighter pilots, and I became a chef. Yeah, and I think Mum and Dad would have loved me to go to university because they had sort of you know very working class uh, way of life. Um, they wanted the best for the kids, and of course they wanted us to go to university and and whatnot. And for me, I, I hated school. I mean, I genuinely hated it. I couldn't stand it. And I couldn't stand the people there either. Um, Don't give us a moment out of school. I give, just, us, just, give us one story out of I school. I just couldn't. Oh. Uh, well, we went to um, <laughs> we went to Edinburgh, we, uh, Edinburgh Zoo, um, and um, um, but, so you would you would remember schools. You were from Britain, right? So yeah. you go to the zoo, and there would be one zoo. There was no cameras. There was no nothing back then. You, you know, in zoos that you get now, where you're being watched every step you take. There was one zookeeper took the penguins out of the enclosure and they walked all the way through the middle of the the middle of the zoo, and it was a thing where schools would be in an excursion and they would they would have their lunch on the grass slopes, and then the penguins would walk through right so you, the kids could see the penguins. I'd never seen a penguin from Glasgow. I'd never seen a penguin in my life. Right, <laughs> so I have a look at it and I say, and we're all sitting there, the group of five six of us that hung out together, and we're like, look at the penguins like walking the yellow feathers and whatever. For us, it was just amazing to see a penguin in the flesh, right? So the zookeeper's like up over the thing, and I said, 
we should just take one of the penguins and we'll take it back in the bus. Anyway, so the guys, the guys are like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So I took off my duffel coat, put it over one of the penguins that was trailing at the end. So the five of us are like on top of this penguin with a duffel coat, like eating a sandwich, pretending nothing's going on. This thing's kicking and squawking. So that we grab it, take it onto the school bus shut the doors on the bus and then it's walking up and down the school bus we're having a great time because it's we've got a penguin it's amazing right and we're feeding it marshmallows and crisps and the penguin I think was having a good time then the school teacher and the zookeeper came on the bus yeah. very unhappy I love it yeah. that's natural selection though I mean if you're trailing at the back very of the pack then expect bad things to happen yeah off to Glasgow yeah so it's not um, yeah <laughs> anyway but that's I don't know I, 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 I was my own person in school and so uh, it came oh, I mean there's so many I got into a lot of trouble like I think uh, from stealing cars to all sorts I had a pretty pretty uh, varied time when I was at school and, and, and I just didn't have time for teachers or the shit they were trying to tell me so so chef um, well, I, I, funnily enough, I'd said, you, do you remember when Specialized Bikes, remember the brand Specialized, they came out, there was, I don't know, even know where I got it from, there was this glossy brochure of Specialized Bikes, and I thought, wow, it's like the best push bike ever, and I was 11, and I, so I said to my mum and dad, I said, I want one of these for Christmas, and my dad just laughed at me, he said, they're like 3,000 quid each, like, forget about it, it's not going to happen, if you want one of these bikes, go and get a job. And so at 11 years old, I was out trying to get, so I already had a couple of paper rounds. Um, and I knew that, I, I mean, I did the maths. Like I would have had to been delivering paper so I was a 60 to buy one of those things. <laughs> so I went out door to door and I was, I was trying everything, shops, clothes shops, whatever. Anyway, I ended up in a restaurant, asked for a job and they said, they said, sure, what, how old are you? And he went, actually, don't tell me that. He said, I'll just pay you cash. I was like, no problem, done. So I was washing dishes. I very quickly realised that probably I was in the wrong side of the flying pots coming into the, the dish bay. I thought, I, actually, all that hubbub and buzz and whatever in the kitchen, I'd quite like to be in there. But I was happy washing the pots, getting the money, and I thought, this is good, I'm going to get this bike pretty soon. And uh, one day, one of the chefs had a motorbike accident, of course, chefs, being chefs. And the head chef came to me and said, listen, he goes, we're one short for tonight. I need you to, to go in the kitchen and cook the veg. And I was like, I said, okay. I said I was 11. And I said, okay, two conditions. One, I get a pay rise. And two. A savvy 11-year-old. And two. Jocks on for a <laughs> And secondly, I never want to wash dishes again. And he said, done. And that was it. I said, from, from, and then that first night I cooked the veg in that restaurant. And I was addicted. It was so, and it would have been, I'm sure it's the same for you and so many other anyone who's out there that's listening as a chef it's this that when you get that first taste of of service and the camaraderie and and the, the sense of urgency and the sense that you're part of a you, you're a cog in, in in this machine that is so essential to get the food out to the customer and to be a, a key part of something is just very addictive, you know? And so that was it. After that, I immediately disengaged from what little engagement I had at school. Um, and, I, and I worked at the restaurant at night. So I was still working at my dad's barber on a Saturday, but I was working at night time after school. Um, and then I would go into school just dead. But I'd sleep in the back. The teachers must have hated me. I mean, I, mean, I was the worst pupil ever, for sure. And so we we fast forward, and you end up working in London because I think did, did you get 
the sack from a particular <laughs> I, got, I was in Chester. I was in Chester and uh, I, the Chester Grosvenor, which was one, it was the Arco restaurant was one mm. star. Um, and uh, I had I'd done my apprenticeship in Scotland and, and everyone sort of said, oh, you know, there's, there's this, there's this, you know, Michelin star guide. Uh, you know, it's much better than this whole hotel stuff that we're doing. And so then I started making inquiries and, you know, much to my amazement, there was much more restaurants out there than this apprenticeship play. Could they try and sort of cocoon you and brainwash you into staying there forever? Um, and so I, um, I, I rang these guys and, and got myself a job. Um, and so I went down there as a, as a call, it was like a first commie. And um, I started working in there. The head chef, the executive chef, spent his, much of his time in the golf course. If it wasn't in the golf course, he was reading golf and magazines in the office. And so committed, passionate, very committed, you know, yeah, loved what totally. he did, engaged. So, but he was the executive chef of the whole hotel, which was the Grosvenor Hotel. It was a very posh hotel for anyone who's been in Chester. Chester's a super expensive area, and it kind of got those black and white buildings. Very nice. And the hotel was very posh, but it had this... So he was the executive chef of the whole hotel, and then inside that, there was this Arkle, which was the one-star restaurant. So, of course, there was a head chef there as well. And Nick, this great guy called Nick, can't remember his second, Nick Green. And he he just got super drunk all the time, and his sous chef Gareth also got super drunk all the time, and so one day they were both intoxicated out the back holding the wall up, and and so we were left over on a call to do a service. So I was here was me as you know like a first comic chef to party, trying my hardest to uphold service, replating dishes. The waiters had just got sick of this happening all the time, and so we're just revolting against it. So they weren't coming to pick up the dishes. I was replating, so I was swearing at them, and rah, I went nuts. And of course, um, the whole entire restaurant heard my obscene language for a good hour and a half through service. Um, and so um, I got dragged into the HR office and, and sacked by the assistant HR manager um, a couple Fantastic. of days later. So you don't get the sack for being drunk. No. <clears throat> or being on the golf course, but a bit of filthy language got you across the line. Oh, it certainly does. Yeah, it was good. So, so that cat, so that made you go to London? Is that, it was did, that the thing? Yeah, you just well, said, right, I'm going to go and do something different? Yeah, the executive chef uh, off of the <clears throat> golf course said to me that I would never work in a Michelin star restaurant again. And, and me being me, I thought, yeah, that'll be right. No problem. So uh, just I thought, oh, okay, who's, who's, who's the hardest, best restaurant with these Michelin stars in Britain and of course it was in London and of course it was Marco Pierre White yeah. and so that was it I got and I tried to ring the restaurant and, and which restaurant and didn't was get through. there okay. was a Hyde Park Hotel so yep. it was the restaurant Marco Pierre White and um, so then I just jumped on a train and went down so I had like a, my Tesco carrier bag with a couple of knives and my chef jacket on jacket over the top of that and went straight down there knocked in the door he answered the door and he's Big blow, you know, he's oh, yeah. a big guy, right? He's a big guy. And so for me back then, and then I was I was 17 then, and so it was a fairly intimidating because he yeah. was, you know, super famous and he was the man of the moment. Well, he was at the peak of, of his career. Yeah. And he's a big man, but he, he, would, he had a reputation, for Absolutely. those that probably don't know, that was intimidating. He was the original, what, enfant terrible, yep. they called him. Terrible, Absolutely. Terrible child. Yeah. so he's opened the door yes he he could be a terrible individual in his own right when he wanted to be but he opened the door and sort of just sort of looked me up and down and asked me what I wanted and I was like oh like I'm after a job I could hardly talk it was the first time you know when you meet someone and you can't really get the words out and then he just uh, he said you better come in you know we we walked around the corner into his office and and his office in, in that restaurant was 
about half the size of this room that we're sitting in now. Tiny. So just a few feet. And you can imagine this behemoth gorilla in the corner, like just settled Angry into, looking man. Settled into his seat and uh, and he, he started asking me where I'd worked and, you know, and uh, I had a choice to make at that point. You know, he's asking me, where, where, where have you come from? Where have you been working? Or where are you working now? And, and so I had a choice. I could either lie, you know, because I, I was thinking, age 17, if I tell this guy I got sacked from a one star, he's probably not going to give me a job, you know? But so I had that split second moment where do I lie about it or to, to tell the truth? And I just looked at him and I thought, I'm going to tell the truth and whatever happens, happens. So I told him. And he said, oh, okay. And so... He picked up the phone, he rang the hotel, he rang the restaurant and asked to, asked to speak to this chef. Anyway, the, he, the chef, he got reception, got put through, asked to speak to the chef and said, it's, it's Marco Pierre White from the restaurant, Marco Pierre White, London, I'm, for, I'm calling for a reference on job. And so uh, Paul, who was the executive chef, said bullshit and hung up, hung a phone up. Michael dialed him back. I'm sitting there going, I don't, just don't want you to ring this guy. I got sacked. Like, I was pretty rude to him when I walked out the door after he told me I would never get a job in a Michelin star kitchen again. Anyway, third time he got through to him and he stayed in for me. He says, don't hang up the phone. Just, I want a, a reference on this guy. And so, of course, he gave me the worst possible reference you could ever imagine. I was, couldn't cook. I was young. I was a drug addict. I was this. I was that. I was the other. Like, all the bad things all on the one call and I was sort of sitting there and I was just I was just like internally crying because I thought this this is it like I'm done now and all I could think about is I've spent the last 18 quid or whatever it was to get from Chester to London on a train and to get to this restaurant and how am I going to get home now like if I don't have a job and so um, he thanked Paul for his kind words uh, hung up, turned around, and looked at me, and he said, "So he goes, how do you think your mother thinks about you getting sacked?" And it was just like that, just burst out crying. It's like he's got that way of just reaching into your heart and your brain at the same time, and just like massaging them. It's horrid. He's he's he's, he's got that thing that he does. Anyway, it was very, it was a horrible moment for me, and. Um, you know, I just said, you know, like, of course she's ashamed or whatever. I'm not very happy, whatever. And he said, um, he said, okay, he goes, I'm going to get you in to work for a day. He said, when can you come in? And I was like, my Tesco carrier bag with my knives, that's I'm ready to go. And so I worked for the day and, and I got the job at the end of the day. And of course, um, I don't have any money. So I, I had taken this job. I had all my stuff still up in Chester, hanging out there. And then... And I, but I had nowhere to live, so after service, I left with everybody because I was embarrassed, you know. Like, and and I'd, everyone was walking different directions, going to the bus, whatever. And so I walked around into Hyde Park, and I always told the guys, "Oh, I'm the other side of Hyde Park." So I went into Hyde Park, did a loop around Hyde Park, and then came back in, punched the code into the door, and I slept in change rooms. I did that for three months because I didn't have any money to to to, to have accommodation anywhere. It was it was horrid. Did Marco find out? Yeah, he did. He, he one of the waiters came in one night um, because he'd forgotten his bag or whatever, and of course I was in the changing rooms, you know, like toilet paper on as mm. my pillow, and and he had to step over me to get his bag, and I remember like consciously hearing somebody come in and like I was just like pretended like I just wasn't there of course he had to step over me to get his bag and so he told Marco the next day and and then and then I got hauled into the office I thought I was going to get sacked and um 
Michael was incredible. He um, lent me some money. He got me, he phoned the, do you remember the youth hostel in London? I can't remember what it was called. There was an old court. There was a massive right. wait list and it was only for chefs that were under, I think you had to be under 21 to, right. to, to stay there. And it was a hostel, like a, a youth hostel, but you, for workers in the hospitality industry. And he rang him up and the role was full. My name was on there, on the list and he accelerated it and I, and I got on there. Eternally thankful. Incredible. And there Amazing. Was, there was no other way around it. I mean, we were doing 18 hour days there and look, mm. Marco's the first person that will tell you what went on in those kitchens those days is now illegal. Yeah, you cannot work like that. You can't treat people like that. You can't communicate to people like that. You just can't do any of it anymore. Yeah. But you know, and and that goes all the way back to my apprenticeship, even in Scotland. You know, yeah. where a sous chef standing behind you screaming at you. They used to employ batches of thirty apprentices at a time, and there would only be two, maybe three, a push left by the end. By the time you'd done your apprenticeship, yeah. every, it just it, it doesn't it doesn't compute. You'd never get away with it these days. Did it make this generation of show, the generation of chefs that went through that, has it given them thick skin? Has it given them some kind of advantage over other chefs? In a lot of ways, I think yes. You know, as, as much as it was wrong, I think it did a lot of good. And I think for me, at that time in my life where I was Wata Marsbar anyway, I think if uh, if there had been the same kind of teaching or, or environment as we have today for me back then, I wouldn't have made it. Yeah. I would have been dead. You probably sure. would have found the military would have been the only other choice Absolutely. at the time that would have had that kind of discipline. Yeah. You talk about being wired to a Mars bar and you mentioned drugs there. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you get into into drugs when yeah, you Yeah, I did. Were? Yeah, I was uh, I was a heroin addict from from uh, from school years. So how, nine, how did that happen? Nine years. How, how does it go from Look, I, I, hate, I hate to say it. I think you know, and for a lot of kids, in particular Glasgow back then, and and I don't, obviously I don't know what it's like there now, but it was very easy to fall into that um, at, at that time. And for me, um, you know, we got a taste of it at school. You know, from from primary school, even smoking cigarettes around the back, and of course, then it accelerates from there. And and before you know it, you're into class A's. And and um, heroin for me was was. Um, you know, eventually, like I, I, I um, uh, December um, 1999, at, it was either Gatwick or Heathrow Airport, one of the two where I was flying out to emigrate to Australia was the last shot of heroin I had. And it was the last time I touched Class A drugs. And for me, it was, it, in the end, heroin is a drug that, um, it, it's, it's a thankless drug. You can take uh, you know, you if 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 you took ecstasy or if you took cocaine or they've got tremendous upsides. You know, you're partying and talking and dancing and whatever. In the end, if you're a heroin addict, all it does is stop the pain temporarily. That's it. That's it. So it it becomes you become reliant on something. You know, you you have to take heroin to brush your teeth. You have to take heroin to get through service. You, you, you do not have been. And so in the end, I wanted to change. I wanted to change my life and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be there or do that anymore. And so, and so that was it. When I, when I came to Australia, I made that, that huge change. That, that nulling of the pain and you talk about get through service. I mean, if you're working 18 hours a day or 16 hours a day, whatever it is, you're working crazy hours. It's an aggressive environment. Did it seem wrong at the time? I don't know if it seemed wrong. I just uh, uh, no, 
on, just part of. I think what it was, was part on. of what what hospitality was, and part of what working in premium restaurants were. I mean, we all knew that we could go and work up for a Ketra and probably work seven and a half hours a day. But did you want to? No. Was it as exciting? No. Was it as rock and roll? No. Did it mean that you could get paid as much and go out and blow it on drugs and girls? No. So you know, I think it was all part of that 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 bigger life that was hospitality, but. You know, I think, you know, unfortunately, drugs and, and hospitality is a very big thing, and, and it still is today. Yeah. And, you know, as someone that's been through it extensively, um, you know, I try and pick it up and recognize it in, in our guys and try and guide them on a different path, you know? Yeah. But it's that you, you described this 11-year-old kid that got, that loved that buzz of the kitchen, the busyness, the, you know, the, the order, the responsibility mm. to the team. And now you're, you're in London, you're in a blown-up version of that on everything that's keeping you going and enjoying the... It's, it's a bit rock and roll, as you say, isn't it? It, it is rock and roll. It's the dignity it, of labour. Hard yakka. It is. Um, and I just think, I, I mean, you know, from, from a drugs perspective, I'm not proud of being a heroin addict for that long, and, 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 and I probably did some pretty ordinary things both in the kitchen and outside of it during that time of my life. And, and, but what I do know is, is that, um, you know, as... as I've just got a different understanding of it. Like I'm able to talk to my children about it in, in a very different way, I guess, uh, than my wife can even. Um, I, I just I don't know I, I don't know why I don't know why drugs and hospitality became such a thing. And I think a lot of it is because of the long hours and, and it's that whole work hard, party hard mentality that chefs still have today. Um, and I think that's probably why it's sort of you, you have an opportunity to accelerate yourself into that way of life. And it's not, it's not a good thing. Did you need help getting off it? Um, I, it took me twice. There was a second attempt that I had. The first time I failed miserably. It's, just, it's incredibly hard. The pain that you go through from withdrawals from heroin is excruciating. And so when you're working an 18-hour day um, and you're working six, seven days a week, that's not an easy thing to do. And so the first time I, I completely failed, um, and the second time I didn't. I and and back then there was so much shame around being being a drug addict, or and there was so much shame certainly in the late nineties about using heroin. Anyway, um, I I didn't want to admit what I was doing, or I didn't want to admit that I needed help. I just wanted to sort myself out. Well, I'm sure you believed you could sort yourself out. Um, most people most people can't. No, I mean I, I did a lot of reading about it um you know and 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 sort of everything said to me that you had to make a complete break and so when Dietmar rang me and said you want to come back to australia i thought this is it this is if i'm if i'm ever gonna make a change it's now yeah did it affect uh, home life did it affect uh, your relationships um yeah it did um and um I, you know and i think my then first wife wouldn't have known she wouldn't have known the extent of it at all did you get married young um yeah i did too young Oh, I got engaged and then I got married when I came back after I was after I'd cleaned. But um, we got engaged uh, in the late nineties. But yeah, and and it's you know like you know when you're on that kind of level of drugs, it's pretty toxic for for anything or anyone around you, and certainly from a relationship perspective, um, it's tough. I mean, you would know um, hospitality or, or the life of a chef 
generally is toxic for a relationship anyway. Um, well, you're never there. No, you're never there. You're the absentee father. You're the, you, you know, I mean, uh, I think all of my wives at some point or other got um, told that like I, didn't, Henry VIII. I didn't exist. You know, How many? <laughs> I've had three. You've had three? I've had three. I'm, uh, on my, I'm on my third. Oh, you're on your third. So mm. you've had, yeah, you've had three. I've had three. I was going to say you've had two and yeah. now you're currently and, in love. And there's no question, um, definitely uh, lifestyle and um, and the demands that the business brings are a huge part of the failures of, of those. How do, how do you fix that? You know, if you, to, an, to another young kid in hospitality who's wanting advice off you how do you, how do you fix I think that? Um, you know you hear a lot of people saying oh you know people get married too young I, I think I, I don't agree with that necessarily but I, I definitely think uh, that you should be cautious of getting married if you are in hospitality young because um, you, you, you potentially stop so many opportunities of working overseas and, and you know travel and whatever once you have kids you've got a much greater responsibility, of course. Um, and therefore, that's your primary concern, not going to work at Michel Bra or, you know, going to the Amazon to work or going to Peru to see what's happening in this amazing thing that's going on over there. And once you've got children, you kind of, although people do travel with children, that's your first concern. And so, you know, I I'd always caution my guys, you know, have relationships, fall in love, do great things, but just be sensible. Think about your career or what you're going to do if, if that's the way. Secondly, you know, we're always looking for ways that we can rationalize a working week into less or, you know, uh, whether that's through more staff or less days. Like our restaurants only trade um, uh, on five days a week. Yep. We're closed on Sunday, Mondays, and we only do lunch on Friday. So my guys get a decent sleep every night, even though they finish late. Um, and, and they can still have a bit of a life, you know? They, they, they still go out for lunch on a Saturday before they come to work. They can still have a family day on a Sunday, and they can still do all the whatever, go to the shops and Medicare and whatever normal people do on a Monday. Yeah. So is that something you promised your current, what's your current wife's name? <laughs> Lauren. I shouldn't say current. So she's your, your forever wife. <laughs> is that what you promised, Lauren? Is that you would give her more time or that you would... Um, more present, maybe, I think, when you're at home. Look, I'll be honest. Lauren has the the best version of Jogs on Thriller that there has been as a person. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know, when we met, we were, you know, both at a, a, a time in our lives where we were happy to commit more time to a relationship than, than we'd previously been. And she, she doesn't work in the industry, but she's got um, a marketing and advertising agency in Sydney. So... Um, She's super busy and super engaged in her work and her job and her business. And, you know, um, so she understands that side of it. Um, you know, if, if she'd been my second wife, um, there's a fair chance it probably wouldn't have worked either because I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't as engaged in a relationship than I was in what I was trying to do. Yeah. What is it you think? Is it because they talk about getting older, calming down, but maybe is it because you just, you, everything that you've described earlier on about visiting these communities, about engaging yourself at different levels. Is this the growth of Jocks and Frillo that's yeah, given th you a different path? I think it changes you as a person. Um, definitely changes you as a person, but I think it also, uh, you, you're right, there is a maturity uh, thing that happens when you when you grow up um, and, and you're, things that are important chop and change. Like, for example, when anyone has children, 
all of a sudden there's a whole new you look at things much differently and i think for there's no there's no bigger a difference or, or no bigger an event that would force somebody particularly in hospitality to look at a change as a kid um, and really it, 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 for me having my daughter I mean my, my eldest daughter is now 16 um, and people look at me and go my god you're like such a rat bag and you've got a 16 year old like what on earth happened there I love my children and I love spending time with my kids and, and you know but at that time I think even I, I, I didn't I didn't quite comprehend even then the magnitude of, of having a child yeah. And the enormity of the responsibility and it's the huge. pleasure. The yeah. pleasure of the responsibility. It's amazing. Where to for you in the next couple of years? You've got the foundation, obviously, but have you got some personal ambitions to fulfill and to, to chase? Um, As a chef or otherwise, it doesn't matter. I don't know. I think, you know, look, I think it was really, I, I love mentoring my staff and I love um, being able to give my staff opportunities and experiences that I might not have had in the industry. And, and you know, it's been amazing, even the last few months, you know, we, the, the restaurant got sort of best restaurant in South Australia yeah, and then won, won the Gourmet <laughs> Traveller Restaurant of the Year. And so, for, you know, for my team, that was that was one of the best gifts that I could give them where they've worked at that restaurant at that time I think is you know you would know that mm. as a as a chef that's yeah. worked at places when you when you when you're able to put that in, in your not in your CV but in your in your bank of experience I, I, I think it does wonders for, for these guys when they go and work in other places so um, that's been amazing I think the, the bigger part of my focus now is definitely on on um, on my children firstly and and secondly the foundation um, you know doing the work that we do in the foundation and visiting communities and preserving some of that knowledge and acknowledging it and giving back is far more rewarding than running a restaurant will ever be absolutely there's one more thing I, I got a note on here when we were doing our research and it says uh, you have a tattoo <laughs> Several. I, I was, I, yeah, but <laughs> I'm not going to ask about those ones. There's one that says, "No one, uh, no one crosses me unarmed." Yes, it's um, it's in Latin and it's off the Scottish coat of arms, um, and so it is on it is on the inside of my arm. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that, is that a younger, angrier version of Jocks and Frilly? Because I'm thinking as you get older, no. you could put a little sub note on the bottom that says, "Unless they smile." Uh, no, I, look, <laughs> I think it's one of those things. I've got, I've, I've got a whole. You call them my sleeve. I think they call them my sleeve. sleeve don't they? The yeah. hipsters call it a sleeve. Yeah. Um, but it is a collection of different things, and so there is a skull and crossbones on there because you know. And it was I always used to say, "Why join the navy when you can be a pirate?" You know, like the, the navy sounds awesome, but being a pirate sounds even more awesome. So, and and there's lots of bits on my arm that are around different stuff, like a like a single crow used to be a, a sign that that one of your ancestors were watching over you. And there's just little things, you know. And and Nemi and Puni Lassesset, which is off the the Scottish coast, that's one of those things. And it was one of those things that I think got drummed into me from the Scottish side of the family. Um, from a very early age that, you know, if you let yourself get crossed once, you'll be doing it for the rest of your life. Mm. Interesting. You know what? Fascinating conversation. We, we've we've been in here for a little while in this little <laughs> studio, and I reckon we could go for a little while longer. But I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate your ins insights. And I'm hoping that um, everybody that's listening has got the same thing. If they want to look at the Foundation website, what is that? It's uh, theoranafoundation.org. And if they want to look at the restaurant website, the restaurant or is um, restaurantarana.com. I'm just testing you. But there's more than one. It's not just Arana, is it? Um, no, yeah. There's Blackwood as well. So it's bistroblackwood.com.au. John Sonfrillo, thank you so much for your time. Thank really you very much. It.
So where do we go from here? We've got our inspiration from Jock, but where do we find some of these ingredients? Well, obviously, you've got to do a little bit of digging, not literally, of course. Go to a speciality grocer and look for things like pepperberries or saltbush, warrigal greens, lemon aspen, wattle seed, and of course, Australia's favourite nut, the macadamia. You'll be surprised how delicious some of these ingredients are. And my one thing, go to the supermarket, because yeah, the supermarket stocks kangaroo, and maybe add it to the shopping basket once a week. It's a native animal. It's delicious. It's not as gamey as people think. Cook it rare, medium rare, throw it on the barbie. It goes great with all those other little native ingredients I've mentioned. And you're doing the right thing for the environment. It's not a hoofed animal, so it's not degrading the land. And also, you've heard about methane, too many cows. Yep, kangaroos are a good thing too. So, give it a try. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky and executive producer is Jamie Show. Audio production by Nick Slater and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for the research. Talk to you next time.